Greetings and welcome. Uh, my name is Michael Le Chevalier and I'm Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. It's a real pleasure to have you all here joining us today and a deep pleasure to uh, be inviting Simon Conway Morris to be joining us today. Um, before turning uh, to today's event, I'd like to call your attention to our web summer lecture series on reason and beauty in Renaissance Christian thought and culture taking place on Tuesdays. You can join us next week for an introduction to Marsilio Ficino and the philosophy of Plato with Denis Robichaud from Notre Dame. Um, for the past year and a half, the Lumen Christi Institute has been providing a range of events under our Science and Religion program, Science and Religion, the Dialogue of Cultures, a project funded generously by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This has allowed us to present lectures at the University of Chicago and for the broader community downtown and now through Zoom across the country with uh, lectures ranging from CRISPR and the human person to disease and the problem of evil. We've also offered non-credit courses at the University of Chicago for students here and, a, um, and two separate week-long intensive summer seminars on modern science and Catholic thought, one for STEM graduate students and one for undergraduate students to help future scientists gain the foundations that they need to speak more responsibly on issues of science and faith. And finally, we hosted um, right here on Zoom, a science and religion summit that drew together representatives from Catholic nonprofits, universities, and seminaries engaged in the dialogue of science and religion to consider existing needs and future directions. As our grant comes to a close, We'd love to have your support so we can continue this type of programming over this summer. Uh, if you'd like to support us in this initiative, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Um, there are also other ways that you can help support us. That is by sharing our events. Today's event will be recorded and available later on YouTube and um, at, uh, our as a podcast. So go ahead and like our events um, help share them across social media um, so that others can learn about us and we can help, uh, you can help us further spread our mission. Now, I want to thank our co-sponsors and regular partners for today's event, the Society of Catholic Scientists, for helping to make this a, a success. I'll now hand it over to um, Peter Tierney, a recent PhD graduate from the University of Chicago in paleontology um, and a staff member at the Lumen Christie Institute who spearheads our science and religion initiative. Peter? Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, so again, Michael mentioned, my name is Peter Tierney and I am a program coordinator for our Science and Religion Initiative. And uh, we at Lumen Christie are very proud to, to bring the opportunity for Simon Conway Morris to speak. Um, and before I introduce him, I wanted to mention to all of you uh, watching here on Zoom uh, that you can ask a question at any time during this event by using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And if you're live streaming uh, on YouTube right now, you may also submit questions uh, via email. And the email to send those to is info at lumenchristi.org. So I'd introduce Simon Conway Morris. Simon Conway Morris is an emeritus professor of evolutionary paleobiology at the University of Cambridge. He is most well known for his work on the evolution of complex multicellular animal life during the Cambrian period, uh, metazoan evolution during what is known as the Cambrian explosion. But he has published on a wide variety of subjects, including the repeated convergence upon certain biological forms across the tree of life. Now, among his many publications, I'll at least mention two of his books, his Life Solution, which I have here, Inevitable Humans in a Lonely Universe, uh, and The Ruins of Evolution, How the Universe Became Self-Aware, published by Templeton Press back in 2015. Um, and so I will invite Simon to turn on his video and unmute himself. Uh, as we begin today, um, and I'll as you take it over. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. Thank you. Thank you also, Michael. So good evening, as we say. I know it's uh, nearer the afternoon for you in, in, in the States, and I welcome you from a very warm uh, and um, pleasant evening in Cambridge, and also one I'm pleased to say where we think COVID may be retreating. And I hope that's true of all of you as well, because that's one thing we can well do without. In any case, I'm not here to talk about viruses, thank goodness. Um, but I'm, amongst other things, an evolutionary biologist, and I have a particular interest in what is known as evolutionary convergence. And one part of that thesis, which is in the book, 
Peter kindly mentioned a moment ago, life solution, is in point of fact, something like a far from being a completely accidental byproduct of the evolutionary process, which would be the received wisdom amongst most neo-Darwinians, in point of fact, something like a human is very likely to evolve on most Earth-like planets. And the underlying thesis of evolutionary convergence is that the number of so-called solutions, the ways of doing things and making organs or indeed behaviors or many other things is surprisingly limited. Now, actually, if you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have some familiarity with physics and chemistry, uh, this is in its own way is not particularly surprising. But I could give thousands of examples of evolutionary convergence and your attention span and mine would long evaporate before we got to the end of this list. With regard to humans, let me just mention perhaps three. Um, what, one, for example, is to do with the way which uh, we use our eyes and they are based on a so-called camera system. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that, but effectively we have a lens suspended between two chambers. And as many of you will know, an almost identical arrangement has evolved independently, effectively, in the group known as the cephalopods, which are more familiar as the squid and the octopus. And they, of course, belong to the mollusks, which in turn are closely related to things like the oyster and, in fact, the earthworm. Whereas we are pretty closely related. I don't want to disappoint you, but that's the way it goes. We're pretty closely related to starfish. And our common ancestor back in the Cambrian about half a billion years ago would have had an eye spot, almost certainly, but nothing like a camera eye. So this arrangement has evolved along separate trajectories, but to very much the same endpoint. Another example to do more with physiology is that there's some reason to think that to be sort of an intelligent organism by and large, you need to be warm blooded. You need a stable body uh, temperature to regulate sort of the physiologists and so forth. And it turns out that once again, this warm bloodedness is something which has evolved independently, most strikingly between the birds and the mammals. The systems are almost identical. In point of fact, we show be emerged independently. Again, this is not rocket science because ironically, the Darwinian effective warm blooded is technically due to a failure to uh, use protons or some calcium across the membranes. So. Um, the point there is that uh, we even see something analogous to uh, warm bloodedness in, in plants. And then the third example I'd like to refer to very briefly is the increase in brain size. And this is something which, again, we see independently in, in a number of groups. Most strikingly amongst uh, parallels to the mammals, we see it in a number of the birds, especially the corvids, the crows, and also the parrots. And so these examples could go on. So in other words, there's a whole set of biological properties, which are ones which you would expect an intelligent sapient species to evolve towards, but in point of fact on this planet alone have evolved independently at least a number of times. Now this is not to say everybody's going in that direction, very far from that, but there are many other forms of organism as well, so I'm not trying to make some unique trajectory, it's simply that if you're going to end up with a species which perhaps ultimately has some curiosity about the world, then indeed we should not be surprised if sooner or later, over a fairly long period of time, it emerges. Now there are a couple of corollaries to this, one of which I won't talk about uh, unless there's sufficient interest, um, and that is that if this thesis of uh, what I would say in the subtitle of life solution, inevitable humans, but in a lonely universe, then in point of fact there should be many examples of extraterrestrial civilization. civilizations. Well quite possibly there are, uh, and again it would take take too long to go off into that direction. But so far, as far as I know of this afternoon's news broadcast, there's no evidence of them at all. The other aspect about evolutionary convergence and the likelihood of something like a human evolving um, is to do with the, the question of animal intelligences, of which, of course, we have many examples. And what I want to now try and do in the next few minutes is to try and investigate what is it which seems to be the gap, uh, as it's being called, between humans and animals. And one is immediately going into very, very tricky ground indeed. First of all, because what I'm going to argue in no way is meant to diminish the status of animals at all. In fact, very much the reverse. The, the peculiarity is in fact ourselves as a sapient species, not the many other animals which we know and sometimes love. 
So in no way is this meant to be some sense that uh, because the animal is not human in any sense, then we can more or less do what we like with it. Darwin, as you probably know, was very concerned about the nature of vivisection, as of course was G.K. Chesterton in a somewhat different context. So uh, I don't want in any sense this idea that we can exploit these creatures in some way because they're not in some way fully sentient. That is not my argument at all. Um, and of course, related to that is that given that we are clearly closely related to chimpanzees and gorillas, uh, given that we have a good fossil record of the homonyms, as they're called, over roughly the last six million years, then if there is this apparent gap between ourselves and animals, then exactly when did it occur? And in fact, some of you who were perhaps uh, looking at the screen which Peter had put up uh, just before my presentation started, we may have noticed that there were two skulls, one of which is Homo sapiens, that's us, the other one is a Neanderthal, at least I hope it's a Neanderthal, um, and of course they are an extinct species of homonym, and for many of you, you will have some Neanderthal DNA within you, and don't worry, it's perfectly safe, in fact it may be possibly beneficial, but um, the, the fact of the matter is that Neanderthals are, are in many, many respects human-like, and you could even argue that their cultural abilities have been arrived at convergently to what we see in, in, in ourselves. Um, but if we've got this evolutionary lineage, then we would seem to immediately return to Darwin's observation that the differences between ourselves and animals are simply ones of degree, not of kind. And yet, when we look around ourselves, uh, as we presently are, as you may notice behind me, I've got all these books, and I know in some circles these are becoming quite outmoded, but the fact of the matter is, and I keep on reminding my students when we're allowed to teach face-to-face, -face, uh, that if you look at the way humans behave and so forth, we are utterly, utterly extraordinary. We are most peculiar in so many ways, and one can encapsulate this in a different sort of, uh, a different sort of set of, of analyses. But this continuity, which is so evident in the genealogy, I would suggest tentatively, does not actually translate into the genuine differences in intelligence. It's not to say that the animals are in any way inferior, but to merely say that what we possess is something which actually is very, very peculiar indeed. Now, there are many difficulties with this um, approach, obviously. Um, but I should say that my thinking was influenced not only by reading quite widely in the literature of animal behavior, which I'll come on to in just a second, but also um, a book written many years ago now by David Stove, who's an Australian uh, uh, philosopher, and his, the name of the book will come to me in just a moment. Uh, and he said, as a philosopher, and also I should mention in passing, he was an atheist, so he had no particular religious act to grind here, uh, that um, really, if you're going to try to persuade me that, you know, what happens in the case of animal mentality can be translated into human mentality, you must be joking. And he he's used a whole set of examples, including the origin of ethics and things like that, um, to bolster his argument. And the point was, as I already mentioned, not only was he an atheist, but he was a philosopher, so he wasn't taking any particular scientific angle on this. So there we are. So the question then is, how do we look at animals? And I'm just going to take a few examples. I've taken the precaution of actually jotting them down here because my memory is not perhaps as good as it should be. And perhaps to give you just one example, and also one which comes from the birds, because if we can see convergence amongst the bird intelligence, which is quasi independent of the primates, but seems to be at more or less the same level, then we have some confidence that this is a general property rather than just some foible of one evolutionary line. And it looks back to a rather famous fable by Aesop, whereby you have a thirsty crow and a pitcher full of water which the crow cannot reach because the water is too far down in the pitcher. So the crow drops in stones one by one and so raises the level of water, reflecting Archimedes, I suppose, and eventually the water rises high enough so he can get a drink. So in, in modern day uh, circumstances, what we do is we do similar experiments whereby the crows are trained, and I'll come on to that in a moment, to drop objects into a test tube 
with water, with food also there, which um, they can then retrieve if they learn how to drop the stones incorrectly. And at first sight, what they do is very, very impressive indeed, because you see them wandering around the cage and dropping in the stones and the water rises and they get their food and everybody's happy. Uh, and there's no doubt that if you have to train them, they, they learn pretty quickly. But the problem is that if you start to make more complicated experiments, whereby, for instance, you make huge tubes or have several tubes which are not necessarily connected, whereby we would infer cause and effect, it very quickly becomes a very quickly becomes apparent that the crows do not have any causal understanding of what's actually going on. Let them learn and they will do it and they won't forget, but they won't actually be able to join the dots, which is something which to us, after a fairly early stage in our childhood, we do more or less effortlessly. So again, to insist, it's not that the crows are stupid, but it is that they live in a context specific world which for the most part answers exactly what they need to do, but would not expand ultimately into the areas which we are associated with. And this question of training is also something which I find very interesting in as much as unsurprisingly, we can't say to the crow, let's call him Fred, or the chimpanzee, let's call him Dora, it doesn't really matter. We'd like you to do this uh, because they don't understand what we're saying. They don't have language. And I'll again, come back to that in just a moment. So we have to train them. Now, it is certainly the case that sometimes animals learn pretty quickly, but that is the exception to the rule. By and large, you need to do an exhaustive amount of training to get the animals even at a reasonably high success rate. Not only that, but an animal may well, excess, it may well excel at some point in a particular task, but then is moved to another task which might not actually be so different, and they're completely hopeless. Not only that, but amongst the animals you choose to test, it's quite often the case, and you have to look in the fine print at the end of the scientific papers. But some of the animals concerned are quickly retired because they're absolutely hopeless. They've not got a clue what's going on at all. They have no interest, and quite frankly, why should they? And remember, of course, that nearly all of these experiments are driven by the uh, provision of food, which, like my dog, you know, we all understand where they're coming from. But the problem with this is that uh, in fact, to have a really good success rate can sometimes take up to 50,000 trials before they eventually get the hang of it. Well, again, that may be because this is not the context in which they've evolved. But ironically, this tells me much more about ourselves because, as I've said in many occasions in the past, what our species would need to do is have 50,000 trials to find out whether starling or whatever your example might actually uh, uh, can be trained you know we're the funny ones not the animals you know they're very patient they do their best and all the rest of it so that's that's one thing about the, both the training and, and and with regard to um the, the related areas there um tool making let's talk about tool making that's absolutely fine again certainly some animals use tools undoubtedly slightly curiously there's not an immediate correlation between intelligence and tool making there's this rough correlation but lots of very bright birds in particular never use tools. They can be trained to, but they themselves do not. And that, again, is probably because the ecological context they find themselves in is where a tool is not necessary. And of course, we have very famous examples like the New Caledonian crow, which uh, uses these remarkable sculpted tools to extract beetle grubs from rotting wood and all the rest of it. But the crucial observation, I think, is that no animal ever uses one tool to make another tool. They may use tools in succession, chimpanzees can do that, but unless you use one tool to make another tool, then you're never going to be on the road to what we call a cumulative technology. It's absolutely fine because what they use them for is, 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 is in its own way quite versatile, but they're never going to emerge into any sort of area which would define a technology. And again, just repeat, this is not that they're failures or anything else like that, are very far from it, but they are not the same as we are because they do not see the world in the same way as we see a tool. And as has been argued, effectively, our tools really are not like animal tools because they are a cognitive extension of ourselves. And this is one of the reasons why humans are so extraordinary, because in a way, our mind flows out into those tools and the tools flow back into our mind both in an immediate way, but also the long-term training. For instance, if you think about a marksman or a pot or anybody like that. So that too is something which I don't think we really see in any sort of animal.
teaching. Well, I'm retired now, so I don't do so much teaching, which is probably just as well for my students. But um, it's commonly thought that animals teach, but in point of fact, they don't. Animals learn undoubtedly, but they do not instruct. In other words, you may well see a female cat teaching its kittens, in a manner of speaking, how to catch. But it, the, the mother will have no comprehension of what is going on inside the mind of its kitten. In other words, it will not adjust its behavior or its rate of teaching on the perception that the child kitten is either brighter or perhaps less bright than some of its siblings. And this is equally apparent amongst the chimpanzees. So amongst the chimpanzees, I, if I had time, I could talk about the way the males hunt the colobus monkey, the red colobus monkey. In point of fact, they don't hunt in the sense of a human hunting. But with regard to some groups of chimpanzees, they, amongst the females, they break open nuts. And this is perfectly reasonable because they have a nutrition inside and all the rest of it. And the young will sit beside the mother and they will observe what's happening. But does the mother at any point ever turn to the young and say, well, this is the way you do it by demonstration, even if they didn't have language, you know, look at the way I'm doing it, pay attention. No, of course not. And for that reason, the young chimpanzees first attempts at cracking open nuts with the adjacent stones is pretty clumsy, like our children. But it takes about three or four years to get anywhere which they would regard in any sense as being sort of, you know, a sophisticated sort of behavior. So, again, all of this ultimately goes down to the thought, which I'll return to if I get my notes in the right order, to the sense which is controversial and by no means accepted by the majority of behavioral biologists of what is called theory of mind. In other words, whether we know what's going on inside the mind of another individual. There's absolutely no doubt that the animals concerned, which we're talking about, crows or chimpanzees or whatever, certainly observe and certainly can judge the actions of others. But can they actually put themselves into the shoes of others? And perhaps one way of looking at that is to say, can they actually become actors? Can they actually transform themselves into something completely different? Yes, they can mimic, but they do, it, do they do it in the sense that one can actually shape one's presentation according to the nature of the audience? And I would argue by and large, they cannot. So again, they may have some glimmerings that the person over there is a person, but that is far from clear. So, leading on from that, again, I really risk here is I'm sounding extremely destructive, and I'm not that at all, because ultimately, I think there are two points worth making, which might be worth stressing straight away. The first is to reiterate is that we are the peculiar ones. We are not really a species anymore. We are a multitude of species of which the most important is that we are homo narans. We live in a story. We found ourselves in a story, which as I've written elsewhere is not of our own making. And this story to us for better or worse seems to make some sort of sense. And that of course extends into the idea that the world around us has meaning. And of course related to that is that an area which might resonate with some of the people who are kindly listening at the moment uh, could also resonate in a theological way both in terms of the story and the narrance, but also the sense of intentionality and meaning. But not for a moment am I trying to import that sort of scientific observation to do with the cognitive style of a chimpanzee or a corvid directly into anything to do with a religious interpretation. There are ways you can do that, I understand, but it's not a simple path, far from it. So here I am, busy chatting away, and what else makes us us. And in a way, and perhaps I'm late coming to this, but I've already mentioned it in passing with respect to the training of animals where we can't actually speak to them. It's not that they're unaware of our gestures and various other things and things like uh, animals like dogs are superbly attuned to those sorts of things, but they have to be trained, of course, they don't get it straight away. Um, it's to do with language. And here too, uh, the argument of Darwinian continuity, which not for a moment am I contested with regard to the fossil record or indeed the genealogy of the various hominin species, so I don't want to be quoted out of context, that is not in dispute at all, is what is it about our language which is not the same as an animal vocalization? Because after all, I'm using my larynx, uh, 
birds use the syrinx, which is, an, is a convergent analogy, effectively, to what we have. And the general idea, of course, has been that animals not only vocalize, but also they have, at least in some cases, proto-language. And the, the, the case example, which is very widely used in undergraduate teaching, is to do with a vervet monkey, where they have these three calls, which relate to three threats, a leopard, a snake, and, a, and an eagle. Uh, but there are some reasons to think that in no sense can this be regarded as a proto-language for a number of reasons. To begin with, of course, uh, there may be groups of vervet monkeys in East Africa, which indeed use these calls. But there are other groups of vervet monkeys further to the South in Africa, which do not. Uh, it's not quite the same story, but if you look at other groups of monkeys, for instance, uh, they often have vocalizations. But the vocalizations you see amongst the females, which are much more social and much more concerned with bringing up the young, are, are, are far more complicated and relatively sophisticated. And the males, which may not surprise some of you who just sort of grunt away and don't do very much, discuss. Um, but the, the point here is that, you know, they, they, they are not actually conveying meaning in the way that they can redeploy the call into a new context. And this, I think, is most dramatically shown with what is often regarded as the most clear analogy between human language and an animal language. That is, of course, to birdsong. Because birdsong, of course, is complex and can be rearranged in various sorts of ways. And if you read the literature, you will indeed find references to syntax and all the rest of it. And even more strikingly, and here, of course, I refer to those birds which do not have an innate song, but ones which, in point of fact, are taught, usually by the fathers, um, that, that they acquire that song. And they huge amount of experimentation in this area, but the young go through this so-called babbling phase where they experiment with the articulation of the sounds in very much the same way as our children do at around about the age of 18 months, maybe a year and a half, something like that, before suddenly the language in which they're being brought up crystallizes out and they start chatting away to our delight and sometimes exasperation. Now, with respect to the bird language, there are two things worth perhaps mentioning is despite these parallels, not only in terms of the structure, but also the neurological arrangements of the vocalization within the brain, which are convergent on the mammal brain. First of all, the language, if you want to call it that, is very thin. It's more or less, so to speak, one dimensional. It doesn't show the recursion which we associate with human languages. In other words, you can't embed sub-sentences within sub-sentences within sub-sentences to give this depth to our understanding. And I find equally in these particular cases, the birth song is never exported to any other function. It's principally to do with mate attraction and mate repulsion. Whereas, of course, with our languages, as we know pretty well, they can be used in all sorts of, you know, curious ways. And, you know, we have, you use the things and this means that effectively one could engage in humour, one can engage in irony, which I think the English are sometimes quite good at, and so are the Americans. But the point about this is that we are able to have this infinitely deep reservoir in which we convey our meanings. Of course, that's not the only way one of the reasons why I don't like Zoom uh, is I'm a pretty ugly chap in any case, but uh, amongst anything, you see yourself and you, it's looking in a mirror, and I disapprove of that strongly. But I mentioned mirrors. Now, here's something which also is very, very interesting, because the idea would be that if you can recognize yourself, that, again, would be a reflection of personality. Oh, that's me as against somebody else. And it's absolutely correct that there are a number of animal species which are capable of what we call mirror self-recognition. And the various ways in which you do this, but briefly what you do is you put a mark on the animal when it's either asleep or anesthetized, which it cannot itself see unless it looks in a mirror. And then the elephant or certain birds or some apes wander to the mirror and then they start examining themselves and they sort of go from side to side. This doesn't look right. And indeed, the notion is that they realize that that thing in the mirror is in a sense themselves. Well, this is all fine and large. What I hadn't realized until quite recently is that such examples of mirror self-recognition are effectively restricted to animals which are being brought up in human company. That is, they are enculturated. And it has been observed in many different respects that if animals are reared 
or are familiar with human behavior, then they are conspicuously more intelligent than their companions in the wild. Now, this is not at all surprising in a way, because after all, animals are meant to, um, you know, be aware and be, be alert to what's going on in the surrounding world and so forth. And also, if it turns out that the people with whom they are associated seem to have an almost endless supply of chow, so much the better. But this aspect of intelligence in an enculturated way, then you start to read all these very famous papers to do with the acquisition of some sort of language, maybe sign language, which in the wild it would never cross their mind to do, why should it? Or to engage in some sort of proto-mathematics, in other words, to teach them sort of cardinality or ordinality or something like that. And again, after a vast amount of effort, in certain cases, star turns amongst especially the chimpanzees will be able to achieve these sorts of things, which it is argued are glimmerings of the expression of language or mathematics. But the point is that these things are effectively pretty well artificial. And we don't see any evidence by and large of the animals themselves showing that sort of motivation, which of course goes full circle to theory of mind and to learning and all these other sorts of things. And in a book, which maybe one day is published, I don't know, um, I tried to construct all the things which characterize the humans, including warfare, for instance, uncomfortably, and many other aspects. And all of these things are interconnected in one way or another, but all of them actually focus, as far as I can see, on the fact, as I already mentioned, that we are homo narans. We're many homos as well, lots and lots of different types. We make tools and all the rest of it. But it is that we have this sense of the story. And I don't think we would have that ability unless we were capable not only of language, but everything which flows from that. And most notably in its expression of mathematics and also broadly speaking, in so-called analogical thinking, our ability to think in categories, our ability, especially in science, that one can see apparently unrelated facts and suddenly realize that there's a deep-seated similarity between those. Or even if there isn't, one can understand something, and this is especially true of teaching, whereby something which is complex and difficult to explain can be conveyed in an apparently simpler way which is more familiar to the pupil you're involved with. So those sorts of arguments are ones which suggest that we, in contrast to animals, live in a world of concepts, of conceptualization. We live in a world of metaphors, where effectively we spend all our time actually talking in metaphors. Everything is somehow relative to everything else. I've got an explanation per se, how we to be in the position we are. However, and I'm afraid now 21st century minds, which are predominantly, at least in the West, reductionist and materialistic, the sort of argument that I'm trying to make in an extremely tentative fashion are not going to find much traction. But if we assume that not least mind itself is not solely in our heads, mentalities as well. If we assume, again, in a theological way, which at least in the Church of England, uh, when they reopened the churches, by the way, when we're allowed to go in, but we're not actually allowed to worship, oh, well, maybe in the next few months we'll get back to that happy situation as well. Um, but in, in these particular cases, uh, what we find ourselves is, is in a world which deals with abstract potentialities. And these things, worlds visible and invisible, as we say in the creed, or one of the creeds, are things which to many of our predecessors, and certainly myself, are ones I couldn't say are familiar, but they're ones I'm entirely comfortable with. And in a way, I don't necessarily see why we should agree to be hemmed in um, by this extremely reductionist view, which I think would be shared by people such as Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. And again, I'm not saying in any way that they're, they're getting things wrong. I've just argued their world picture might possibly be incomplete. I mean, they, they themselves are respectively a brilliant scientist and brilliant writer. But if one is inviting oneself to say, well, let us say, what is the nature of mind? What is a nature where it might actually be pre-existent to everything? Supposing in essence, as indeed many people have suggested in the past, that 
our brains act as a quasi antenna, that's a very crude and technological comparison, then one might begin to say that we're dealing with unfinished business. And as a scientist alone, I would be perfectly happy to say that that itself is a promising start. So I was given a little bit of guidance on the time. I understand that there might be one or two questions. There might not, of course. Um, but I think I've spoken for quite long enough. And um, I think Peter will now, if that's all right, Peter, a return to deal with questions and answers. Of course. Of course. Um, and I'd like to remind everyone uh, listening on, on Zoom that you can submit questions through the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And we already have a couple, uh, so I'll, I'll get started with this. Um, so we have actually a couple questions on bipedalism. Um, so in much of what we, we use to discern what is a, what is a modern human, uh, we refer to, to language, but as well as, as, as sort of physical traits. And some people are, sort of con are confused as to what the sort of purpose of, of adding bipedalism to that list is uh, in, in creating what we know as the modern human. Would you be Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, 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 it wouldn't be possible in any case at home, as you can probably gather, if I was in my office, I'd rush around and get down books straight away. I mean, there are, there are two questions there, I think, to, to start with. Why did we become bipedal? Well, it's, it's not at all clear. Uh, that, that's as simple as that. I mean, the fossil record is pretty informative about that. It's a, it's a transitory, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process of transformation and so forth. And indeed, even some quite late species um, are, are actually probably still facultatively arboreal. So it's not, it's not a sort of a, a cut thing. All the standard questions to do with, you know, freeing up the hands, carrying the children, making tools and all the rest of it, they are probably contributory to that. But I think probably behind that is the way, in fact, where you are broadly manipulating your environment. The environment is for more or less coming part of yourself. And that's not really an adequate answer, but some people argue that the very first tools which we find in places like Ethiopia and, and that part of, of, of Africa, the older one cultures and all the rest of it, and some slightly preceding ones, chimpanzees, as I mentioned, use tools, but um, they don't have them in the same sort of, for instance, they can make a flake off a tool, but they never use that flake. Hmm. But corresponding, some archaeologists argue that there is something mentally different about the older one culture. There's a sense in the sense we're putting our minds in it. Well, you're not going to be able to do that sort of thing. And almost those stone tools were preceded by wood in particular for probably a, a more than a million years. So it's probably related to tool making, but it, it's part of, it's, it's a much a part of a mental transformation whereby we are putting ourselves out. Your questions didn't ask, ask that question. I'm very glad they didn't, frankly. But, you know, there's also the question because bipedal itself is widely, but one or two exceptions, I mean, the orangutan after a fashion, an extinct ape called Oreopithecus from the Miocene of Italy. Uh, there's nothing quite like our, our modality, although there are some suggestions bipedality in human hominids evolved more than once. But it seems clear that if we want to become bipedal, then the route is through the trees. And there we have some very nice convergences, effectively, how you make a transition from powerful hind limbs to manipulative forelimbs, which in a sense fears what is us. So again, from the evolutionary perspective, I, I wouldn't want to sort of have a sort of cut and dried, this is a simple answer, because in any particular case, there's a regress of investigation into what preceded what was then possible and what might undermine my argument, and some people have tried to do this, and that, I, I welcome it, needless to say, is that there might be crucial turning points in the history of evolution, which then preclude some other particular trajectory. I, I'm for various reasons. I don't think that is valid, but nevertheless, it's a thing. So yes, that's that's a rather useless answer to a very important question. Yeah. So there are several questions that come out of that from from this list here. Um, Christopher asks about the quote: "The minds flowing into our tools." Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the British polymath from early 20th century, Michael Pollyani but he had an idea of, of indwelling probes. Uh, is that sort of related, is the idea of minds flowing into our tools related to that concept? And, and can you actually explain what, what Michael Polanyi's idea of indwelling probes is for the audience? But no, I can't. I mean, I know some of Polanyi's workings, both I mean, he, he and he had a very distinguished son as well. Um, I've read some of his papers and, and some of his book. I'm not, I'm not an expert in this area here. Well, I mean, all I can say from the very little I know about Michael Polanyi is that he was and I use this in an English sense, eccentric in terms of scientific thinking. Mm -hmm. He was somebody who was comfortable 
with the fact that one is embedded in a world f- and 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 uh, Peter, you can correct them straight away because you obviously know much more about it than I do. In fact, you can join the conversation immediately. Sure. Uh, uh, it's comfortable with with a world which where meaning is genuine. That you know that there's an intentionality about the world itself. Um, I mean, my own uh, inspiration, and unfortunately, I don't remember the names clearly, came from reading a series of articles by an anthropologist on this extension of the cognitive um, uh, na- nature toolmaking. Um, uh, and in an email, I could certainly, when I find the right, find the right to send people who are necessary details. So I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on Polanyi. I've read one of his books and, and that very famous paper in science. Yeah. Well, I am not an expert on, on Polanyi either, so I, I can't really comment further in, the, in that space. Um, we have some uh, other great questions that I would like to spin off from, from there. Um, and really, there was one thing you mentioned in the, in the toolmaking uh, a section in that this could evolve multiple times. And a lot of what we identify uh, when it comes to the modern human, that, that, that homo narans, we, we look very specifically into homo sapiens in that, in, in, in that nested group. Um, but there's no reason that, that you can't develop these certain traits that we identify as the human beyond, beyond our, our initial species. So we have a couple of questions asking what sort of unique identifiers can you look for if we can want to identify another hominid as sort of one of us, uh, particularly if, if, if language is something that is so key to it and may not leave a physical trace. Gosh, well, again, it's not a complicated area, but it's, it's difficult to explain concisely. But briefly, as I read the evidence to start with, um, the acquisition of stone tools by humans certainly has some sort of parallel in some of the New World monkeys and also among some of the uh, the, the African apes, undoubtedly. And of course, there are other animals which also use tools. But as I mentioned a moment ago, there does seem to be something qualitatively different about our sort of tools. And of course, much of our evidence of hominin evolution comes from the tools and associated materials such as ochre, the red pigment, and all these other sort of stories like mm-hmm. that. And uh, by and large, what one sees is increasing sophistication of use. Um, and in this context, which may be relevant, we look at the Neanderthals. And they are fascinating for so many reasons because there's clear evidence, for instance, that they work with this process known as hafting, whereby you attach your flint point to a, to a wooden stick and you call it a spear and things like that. The technology to do this amongst the Neanderthals was very, very sophisticated. So there's no doubt that they, of course, we have a common ancestor, which is living maybe 700,000 years ago. But otherwise, they're on a fairly separate trajectory. And then that segues, of course, into the very late development of Neanderthal cultures, uh, famously through the Chateau Peronian, which have often been regarded as imitative, but the evidence seems to very strongly point to them being independent of what we see in the human. So that, that provides some sort of guide. But on the other hand, there's this question, first of all, that modern Homo sapiens appears around about 200,000 years ago, give or take. But those half strip are lithic technologies are really fairly and are not innovative. They really begin to take off maybe a hundred thousand years ago. So what was that? Was it population increase? You know, so we can talk about all those sorts of things. Um, and and the, the the aspect though there is that Neanderthals are so close to us, and of course they are, because otherwise we wouldn't have had interbreeding and we wouldn't have Neanderthal DNA in ourselves. So the, not everybody, it's a more complicated story than that, but the great majority of people, not the great majority, many, many people. Um, but there are some things they show which don't quite add up. They show amazing things like building stalagmitic circles deep underground with evidence of fire on them, a bit like a Neanderthal Brunhilde, for heaven's sake. But on the other hand, if you look at the um, bones which they have associated with eating prey, they have the usual cross-section of, of European, quasi-European things, horse, reindeer, all these sorts of things. But there's a surprising shortage of animals like stoats. Now, I'm not sure eating a stoat's much fun. The point about these animals, of course, well, no, I've never tried one, but there we go, um, is that they have, um, they've got a particular fur which is very good at wind resistance. And especially in a near tundra environment would be just the sort of thing which in an, in an Inuit, or indeed any sort of Arctic dwelling thing will form a rim round here to protect against frostbite, which is pretty important because if you're standing motionless for three hours before your prey comes by, you want to keep as toasty warm as possible. 
But when we look at the middens of the Neanderthal, there are very, very few examples of these sorts of bones from these sorts of animals. So there's something about the Neanderthals which is not, it's not quite there. They're so tantalizingly close. And yet they seem, it's so difficult to, to be sure because they must have, I think they must have had language. There's just some little thing there which somehow the dots were never quite joined despite the adaptive pressure to protect yourself against intense cold. So tricky, yeah. So the proposal is that, that their vocal folds weren't able to, to produce the kind of sounds that, that we can. Um, but I know that there has been literature uh, uh, written about Neanderthals potentially making music. Would, would, would that overlap with uh, our ideas of what, what we need to produce language, even if they didn't have the physical capabilities to produce the kind of sounds we could, but there's still an abstraction that might be sure. available. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, my, my real expertise is 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 um, uh, fossil worms. So you know, I, I've been extending ever since then in a, a rather amateurish way. <laughs> it's a good argument we're going to is to do with with the so-called hyoid bone, which is generally easily detached and not often preserved. But I think most archaeologists would be very comfortable with Neanderthals having fully fledged language. I mean, they are otherwise so similar to ourselves. I mean, I think it's very very unlikely that they didn't have that. However, of course, because we are so dependent on information from writing, and indeed there's evidence of Neanderthal art, though I think it'd be fair to say it doesn't show the sophistication we see in Cro-Magnon art, discuss, is that in a way, extending my feeble attempts to describe our evolutionary trajectory as a, uh, exploration. Um, one of my great, I've got many great weaknesses which you don't need to know about, but one of them is that a complete inability to, to really deal with poetry properly. You know, it's just, I try, a feeble. But it's pretty clear to me now that in a certain sort of way, and this actually goes back to some very interesting ideas put forward by Owen Barfield, who was one of the inklings to do with the origin of language, and we probably won't have time to unpack that very far. But in a certain sort of way. I'm not saying Neanderthals didn't have poetry, um, but I'm not sure they would have. But there is an argument that ultimately, when you really want, really want to convey a meaning, really begin to get even halfway there, you can only do it poetically. And that's probably also applicable in, in a very strange way to music. And it is the case that there are some long bones which have perforations in them which ostensibly were made by Neanderthals and could have functioned as a flute or something analogous to a recorder. And again, I think the, the jury on this has gone to and fro, to and fro, to and fro. It would be surprising if they heard just natural resonances and were just fiddling around with things, that they didn't make various sounds on hollow bones. Whether that then translated into rhythms and dance which again are things which actually effectively are unique to humans. I know animals are said to dance, but it's slightly different. And so too many animals have music. And I was very into arguments in that direction some years ago. But I now think there's something very, very special and strange about our music, partly because it's emotional based, but also because um, of its, um, it's sorry, I'm, my dog has just come in to see what's going on, but he's been summoned back to, <laughs> thanks. Uh, otherwise I'd have introduced him. He's a spaniel, never mind. Um, uh, our music there conveys meaning in an extraordinarily successful way. But if you ask anybody with possible exception of, you know, music by Wagner, maybe, and maybe people's revolving around birdsong and so forth, it, it, you know, technically it's meaningless, but it transforms us. It takes us into completely new worlds. We have a, a question by uh, the, a resident poet, actually, um, Eric Alstein. Um, so giving all this argument about intelligence, animal intelligence particularly, um, is, there, is there any sort of limitation of us using uh, a clearly anthropomorphic understanding of cognition when trying to analyze uh, uh, intelligence of, of other animals? There most certainly is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to start with, uh, Although animal behaviorists are, are, you know, are hardwired trained to avoid anthropomorphic observations uh, or, or, or prejudices, um, it's fantastically difficult to avoid them. 
And the reason I think ironically is that actually only we can stand outside ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's difficult to imagine what it's like being a seal or a dolphin or a, or a crow. Yeah. But we can have a sort of go at it and we can write stories about it. If You know, The Once and Future King by T.H. White's got marvellous descriptions of entering the minds of other animals. It's very, very amusing. Um, so I, I'm not persuaded that in a certain sense we can ever be independent observers. But correspondingly, there is a, a sort of strand of argument which says, can we all just calm down a great deal and stop worrying about animal intelligences per se? Because... There isn't an animal intelligence. There are millions of animal intelligences, any one of which is designed to do exactly what it does, is to keep the animal alive and to allow it to reproduce and all the rest of it. And by and large, you know, uh, to keep itself in a zone of comfort rather than a zone of danger. And I have obviously a lot of sympathy with that because, you know, imagining putting oneself into an alien thing, mm. echoing the fa very famous essay by Thomas Nagel about the mind of the bat and all the rest of it. But... I would argue, and again, I can see some people say, oh, well, there's old Colin Morris going on about human superiority, and bloody, bloody, blah. I'm not. But only we, it appears, actually can see beyond our noses. Only we have this way of extending our cognition outside. And I would argue that that remains genuinely special. You know, it's, it's not something to be mocked. Of course, it can lead to the most appalling things. Goodness knows, we know that. But on the other hand, it is part of us being human and not animal. And I hope there's not a question about Thomas Aquinas, but, you know, those of you who are familiar with this area, which I'm not, will know straight away where we're going to go in this argument. So um, we have a little under 10 minutes, so we'll try to get two more questions here. Uh, and we're not going to be able to get to everything. We have a good 70 questions uh, on on here. But um, we have several questions on, on human language and how, how, it might have how it might have arisen, but also what how evolution sort of fits in to the development of, of human language. Uh, are there sort of evolutionary pre preconditions that, that are needed for, for the development of language that you can that you can elucidate on? And do you think that could be developed gradually or is this something that could that really could just all click at once? Well, you, you, you go to a library and you pull out whichever book you like and you'll get the answer you want. <laughs> yes. So all your well, I mean, if I, if I again, I'm, I'm very much out of my depth here, but if, if I understand in this context of the question, not in other respects, Chomsky, then, you know, OK, he talks about hardwired business and all the rest of it. A number of linguists are perfectly comfortable with it effectively emerged more or less instantaneously. Hmm. And to imagine that their animal... Uh, uh, predecessors in any useful sense in terms of cognitive continuity is delusional. Um, and I have, a, I have a lot of uh, sympathy with it, but I mentioned in passing, and again, this is not me speaking as a scientist, but uh, Owen Barfield, who was one of the uh, Oxford Inklings, so he's a great chum of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams and a number of other people and so forth. But in a series of remarkable books, in my view, he suggested that Human language is certainly nothing to do with animals in any sensible way, other than we produce sounds, but it's one which is automatic, and it's very nice. They're not arguments which are complicated, but there are two crucial observations. First, which I think is quite, not frightening, but interesting, is that our consciousness, even in the last 10,000 years, has changed. And again, even in the last few centuries, and we know how important this is at the moment, putting yourself back into the minds of people who even lived two or 300 years ago may be much more difficult than you think. You can read their books, you can read their letters and all the rest of it, but actually getting to their mindset. And then if you go back to the time of Troy and Homer, and again, there are various people written about this area, actually, they really do see the world differently. And linked to that in a way is that the word, and he uses various examples like pneuma for breath and spirit and wind and so forth. That's one of his favorite examples. These are ones which effectively provided a comprehensive description of a whole series of things which now have been broken down into sub-meanings, which give us a precision of understanding. And this is especially important in science, but at the expense of an erosion of poetical meaning, meaning metaphorical meaning and the ability to see things through mythopoeic lenses. In other words, to again, go back to Homer Narans, 
and find ourselves in a mythology which is true. And that, of course, resonates very much with what Tolkien was interested in as well. So, and that's not very helpful given that we say, well, hang on, Simon, you know, was it 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years? When did we start speaking? You've got to tell me. But if we argue that actually we're on a continuing journey and we're not at some end point, then we can, in fact, pity people before us who apparently were so delusional. They weren't. But remember that we too will be pitied by people in the future who will look back at us and say, my goodness me, how could they be so slow? And of course, that's just the wrong way to look at it. We are where we are and we make the best of what we can. We have two more questions in here. Uh, and the first one's from John. Uh, it is 1996 address from, to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Pope St. John Paul II characterized the status of evolutionary theory as more than a hypothesis, but reserved of divine role for ensoulment. Now, what do you think of the idea of sort of preserved art being evidence of sort of ensoulment in, in, in any case? Sorry, you, you mean in terms of, so I, I beg your pardon, you mean in terms of something like a painting? Yes, or, yeah. or, or development of, of art or, or understanding sort of abstract idea of, 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 of the other. Yes, I can't, I can't speak on behalf of the Pope, I'm pleased to say, but um, at least no, I hope not. Uh, no, no, I, I, I would agree in a sense with the question because, you know, rationally, <laughs> you know, that painting is just some pigment on, on a flat surface. Mm-hmm. And yet we know very interestingly, and I have to be careful here, of course, but I, I mean, many years ago, the first time I went to Venice, I should have gone much earlier, but never mind. And I went into the, the church called the Frari, which some of you know, and there's this famous um, Assumption of the Virgin uh, by um, Titian. And I was just staggered, absolutely staggered. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, we, we can use all the examples we like and, and show off, but you know, there's some artists just get that much closer. Titian does, in my view, Turner does as well in a different way, Constable does in yet a different way and so on and so forth, are ones in, in the same way as many other artists don't quite get that encapsulation of the infinite. They're trying their hardest, as indeed I do with my writing, but I, I'm never disappointed I didn't do it. So I emphatically agree that, you know, animals sort of paint, no they don't, not in the sense that we mean it. No, they're absolutely right. Yeah, that is part of what makes us very much so. Well, so it's insolvent. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's somewhat linked. Um, so we have the final question being, where would you begin if you want to learn more about these kinds of questions, say books uh, or, or, or articles? Um, uh, there are many scientists out there who feel like there's a lack of, of, of resources uh, in, in, in science and religion uh, that you can turn to for this. So do you have any particular recommendations, whether it's your, your books, articles or others? Well, of course. I recommend my books completely. You know, they're wonderful. You know, I think they're in print. Right, I'm not sure that's true. No, no, <laughs> people are most welcome to look at my stuff, but I wouldn't over-recommend it, I must say. Um, it is difficult because, without being too controversial, Christian scientists tend slightly, with the best will in the world, to go towards creationist arguments in the not, not in the intelligent design. And our problem is that, you know, I am a scientist, I've got an interest in other things. And I spend a lot of time not thinking, but not working in separate compartments. But like the question to do with the art is to try and take the wider view. And it's very, very difficult to capture that in terms of much of our science. Uh, it sounds a little negative and I don't mean it that way at all. I mean, in terms of the sorts of books, which I'm sure many people would find helpful, a uh, colleague and friend of mine, Dennis, Ale- Dennis Alexander, uh, and in the Faraday Institute here in Cambridge, and they have a lot of outreach, of course, in our current COVID days, but meetings in Cambridge and elsewhere. John Templeton Foundation and different sorts of things, of course, is promoted in many other sort of areas. Um, but I, I have to say, speaking entirely personally, with regard to the standard science and religion books, ironically, they don't get me very far. Uh, And it's probably just because when I want to read theology or poetry or about art or music or whatever, then I will resonate with what I think the world means. And I can do the same thing with my science so far as I can, especially its provisionality. 
Uh, but to try and meld these together in, in a way which I think sometimes, frankly, is a little too literal. It, it's, it's not dangerous, but it, 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 I'm not quite sure this is going to be the most productive way forward. And it's got to be much more a dialogue than merely saying, you know, that, you know, isn't the protein machine wonderful? It's fantastic. I couldn't agree more. But I'm, I'm more interested in the sort of, well, very broadly, you know, the way the Inklings, Lewis, Tolkien, Barfield, Williams, looked at our world. And every time I read anything by them, I say, yup, they are, they're, 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 they're hearing something which is worth listening to. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, and so this brings us to the end of our program. It is now 1 p.m. Um, so thank you again, Simon Connie Morris, for joining us uh, here from across the pond. Thanks again to our co-sponsors, the Society of Catholic Scientists, and our, our funder, the John Templeton Foundation. Now, if you enjoyed today's program and want to support our science and religion programming, you can donate today at www.lumenchristie.org slash donate. Just make mention of science and religion in the comment, and we'll be sure to, to focus that donation towards that end. Now stay tuned for more events in science and religion, looking at the Anthropocene, uh, something that resonates with me as a geologist, and integral bioethics. Uh, so you should keep uh, note of that for the next couple of months. Now thank you again. Have a good, good day. <laughs>